Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio spoke with a key political consultant about our elections, chatted with our aldermen, and heard brand new music from one of Chicago's hottest new acts. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for March 30th, 2018. Mario Smith spoke with Michaela Blaze about the recent elections in Chicago and how the results fell for progressive candidates. Blaze discussed Chewy Garcia's historic win, Marie Newman's loss, and other key races in the city of Chicago. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining me on the phone right now, she is exhausted because she has been running around the state of Illinois helping people win campaigns and stuff, and she has been gracious enough to uh, take a little bit of time out of her rest to join us on the phone, political consultant and chief political commentator for my show, ladies and gentlemen, Michaela Blaze. <laughs> hey, Mario Smith. Hey, boss. What's happening? Oh, man. What an exciting week. To say the least, and it ramped up today, this afternoon of all times, with the Gary McCarthy, Rahm Emanuel uh, go back and forth. Have you heard about this? I am somewhat familiar. Well, but you know, Gary's nothing but fun. Okay, apparently. <laughs> um, so there is a um, a video out. By the way, Gary Tyson is here as well. Hi, Gary. Hey, how you doing? Great, great. Good. Um, Mayor Manuel, you know, McCarthy made a little video last night where he had a room. Uh, full of people sitting at a table, and he was pointing at them very vociferously as if to say, you know, I'm going to do this, and we're going to do that. And Rahm Emanuel came back with a video this afternoon uh, that features Donald Trump calling McCarthy a phenomenal guy three different times, <laughs> at least five times they say it in the ad. Um, early take on McCarthy, a lot of smoke, no chance of winning? Or does he um, have a chance to win? I've said this before. I think he's Chicago's very own Donald Trump. Mm. I think he's not going to be politically correct. I think he's not going to... He's going to appeal to a certain audience and be unapologetically uh, that guy. <laughs> and I, I I think it's going to be fun. But then again, I thought Trump was going to be fun, too, until he actually won. Yeah, well, I didn't so think it was going to be that. fun. I thought it was going to be just what it is, a mess. <laughs> And the mess gets bigger. His lawyer, his head lawyer, John Dow, quit today. Right. They're dropping like flies over there. <laughs> it's amazing how, how this is all taking taking shape with um, with just the, the idea that people are like, dude, you're you're so toxic. Even though I know I shouldn't be trying to help you. I really can't help you. You're you're dangerous to be around. It's like when you see the gangbang on the street that you knew when you were in grammar school, but you know people like shooting at him, so you kind of can't be around him. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean, this is really this is an interesting, uh, interesting time for that, him. Or when he's walking down the street and then just like stops by to say hi to you and sits on your porch and you're like, ooh, yeah. I, I don't Take know if I want him there. You got to get out of here, man. I love you, but, but beat it. Um, the results of the election are very telling. Um, I want to talk about the numbers of, of people who voted in Chicago in a minute. But it appears that Bruce Rauner's party has kind of retreated on him. And it doesn't look good for him in November if we were to judge it by what happened Tuesday. What's your take on Rauner and where he is right now in this whole scheme of things running against uh, Pritzker? I think that race is interesting. Um, so, Rauner, you know, 
was um, voted the worst Republican governor in the United States. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> Illinois wins well, again. There's some progressive things he's doing, or seemingly progressive things that he's doing. Um, and so I think that more, that message has gone out to the Republican folks in Illinois. And they want, and, and, but I think it's super interesting because we have to pay real attention to, um, the whack job who is Jeannie Ives and how much attention and traction she got. Um, and what this is saying about what the voters in Illinois are feeling, right? Um, I think we have to pay attention and figure out what they're looking for. What what in her um, made sense to them? Because she said some real bogus stuff, and and uh, it was real outside the realm of being appreciative of different cultures, of um, immigration, immigrants. Like there's some real bogus. The transgender, the commercial that she did with a man with a beard and a dress, like it yeah. was just she was vulgar. She right? went, she went full bore. Watch out for me on the whole deal, yeah, yeah. And so it it really begs the question: what what is going on in Illinois? What are people feeling that it's making them think that that stuff is funny or cute or appropriate in their leadership? Also, the, the, the Nazi gentleman from uh, those two things you never say in the same sentence, Nazi gentleman from downstate uh, won his unopposed race. Well, unopposed. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> you know, that was. <laughs> uh, Shannon, uh, Shannon O'Malley won because he was unopposed too. Shannon O'Malley. You mean um, uh, the, Mr. Philip Patel. C-Wack. Yeah, C-Wack. Yes, Philip Rack won his race. And it's funny that he was unopposed. My assumption is that his ballot name was so good, nobody wanted to get in the race against him. <laughs> Probably so he didn't not. Even, turns out he didn't ha- even have an opponent. Wow. That's telling, too. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, right. Um, Kwame Raul, the, the, uh, in the, the weathered sometimes Kwame Raul, won his race for attorney general. Um, I I thought Adam Goldstein had as good a chance as anybody. I was very surprised that that did not happen. Um, Raul has a pretty good chance of being the next attorney general in Illinois. Um, how does November in an early? If you could give a put an early window on it, how does November look for him? I think he's got some work to do downstate. Mm-hmm. I think um, he's got a name, Kwame Raul, that will make people ask a few extra questions. Um, he did great in Cook County, and so I think he might, he just, he's going to have to travel a bit until November, um, and really sharpen that message. But I think, you know, he's going to have to pay attention. It's not going to be a cakewalk. No, not at all. I don't propose it will be either. Um, only 29% of Chicagoans came out to vote. I had a conversation with our, our, all of our mutual friends, Mr. A.V.R. Young yesterday, and he said something that stuck about this election, and I just want to get your opinion on it. Black and brown people in Chicago will not come out to vote unless they see someone that represents them, whether they're black or not, represents them in their interest, whether it's the primary or a general election. You you agree with that? So it's interesting. When you really do a deep dive by the wards, 
um, and and particularly the words that are really um, segregated by race. Um, the black words were two, three, sometimes five percent higher on average than the white words. Hmm. So people are constantly screaming, "Black people don't vote," and it's just not true. I mean, we're we're saying higher, right? So this is a matter of percentages, like twenty. 7, 26% in white wards and 28 to 30 in black wards. So um, nobody votes that much, right? We, we should all, as Americans, do better at that. But if you really do the deep dive into the numbers, which I did with your best friend now. <laughs> Come on, man. Give me a break. Um, yes. Uh, I did a deep dive with the, in the numbers as far as that goes. And they look, they're just a smidge higher. So all these people saying that um, that black people don't vote, we're, we're average or better, FYI. Now, the Latinos, there's a little bit of work that needs to be done there, but that might also be as a result of representation, too. If you look at what was going on, there wasn't a lot of Latino participation in terms of candidates running for office. Right. Um, I, 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 I'm of the frame of mind that you've got in this city, there's so much and so many different takes you can have on the election, on any election. But I, I, I feel like there are more people in Chicago who are not uh, Trump apologists per se, but a lot of people feel the same way he does if we can ever gauge how the hell he feels. Uh, th- th- that's that same kind of. You guys have had this long enough feeling when really we've never had it, but you guys have had this long enough and it's our turn to do things to really mess this up even worse. It just it's, you know, I I, I tend to believe I'm an optimist. I believe in November everybody gets fired and you get people in office who have absolute desire to do their job, not just collect that sweet check that they get. Um, But as you said, my best friend, Quentin, pointed out. Um, those numbers don't show that that disparity is as as I have been told it is. Yep. Yeah. I, but I think your point is valid. We have to see people that look like us, people that inspire us, people that um, are participating in our communities in a healthy way, in a meaningful way. Not just it's not always just a color person, right? There were like Orrin Whiting was running countywide. But a lot of folks in the community didn't really connect with him. Right. So a white judge won over him. So, I mean, I, I think we're all looking for that person. Um, and, and we are paying attention. with sculptor Daniel G. Baird. Daniel's current solo exhibition, On the Water, is on display at New York's Grimm Gallery and is also featured in Unthought Environments at Chicago's Renaissance Society. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Dan Baird, <laughs> artist, world traveler, friend, 
of the Pilsen and uh, Bridgeport communities. Uh-huh. How are you doing today? I'm doing very, very well. You just returned, yeah. right? Yeah. From where? Um, <laughs> we, I, I, we heard that you went to this magical place. Yeah, I went to this uh, distant land called uh, New York. Um, oh, I, I, I just got back on Monday from a, a show that opened at a gallery there called Grimm. That sounds terrifying. Uh, <laughs> Is it a grim kind of, yeah, <laughs> ominous? Uh, no, it's just the it's the uh, last name of the, the owner of the gallery. The Brothers Grimm? Um, I don't, <laughs> it, it's spelled similar. I don't know if there's a connection there. So tell us about your show. What's it called? Um, so the show's called Of the Water. Um, at, and, the gr- at Grimm? Yes, Of the Water <laughs> at Grimm. Um, and... Yeah. Um, this is a solo show? It's a solo show. Well, there were two solo shows that opened. One was with a artist named Letha Wilson. I saw. I love Letha Wilson's yeah. work. Yeah, her work is really great. I was like, I have to remind myself to not only talk about Letha. <laughs> 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 but so did you, you, I'm assuming you showed sculptures. Give yeah, us an yeah. idea of kind of what one would see if they walked into your show at Grimm Gallery. Right. Um Okay, well, maybe I can say that the the starting point that I... Um, the water? Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the water is always the starting point, the, the, the fountain. Um, but the show kind of... My idea about the show began from this uh, experience I had, or really this, this process I did in May of last year where I brought this... Um, 3D scanner to this cave that I've been sourcing a lot of um, material from to produce sculptures. And I made this very detailed 3D model of this entire cave. Um, so that kind of kickstarted the um, idea of the show uh, from this exact replica and this, this um, highly detailed model of this location. Um, so many questions. How big is <laughs> yeah. the scale model of the cave? Well, um, the scale model for for the show, it's it's this conundrum of um, well, when you have a, a scale model of something, reproducing that is always this uh, difficulty because it remains in like a small form, and that changes how the the piece is um, inherently. Uh, so for the show, the the main element of the show. Well, I guess there's many. There's lots of different moments, but in regards to this model, I um, produced this scale model and then turned the the model of the cave, the full detailed small model, which is about the size of. Um, You're like looking at your hands. Two hands, yeah, two <laughs> hands put together. I'm trying to give a sense of scale. Uh, I love when people make hand gestures on the radio. <laughs> it's very helpful. Yeah, yeah, I'm like forming air in in front of me. We'll put um, photos of hands up in case people want to know how big hands are. How big are. two Perfect. hands are. Um, so, so it's small. It's it's yeah, it's pretty small. Um, but I, it, it's still within that idea of the model. So I, it, it felt necessary to be that small, and um, and that model I've turned into a fountain, Ooh, a functioning oh. fountain that has a continuous uh, stream of water. That's oh, pouring. I was hoping it was chocolate. <laughs> ah, yeah. And there's yeah, with the like some. A cheese plate nearby, like cave I cheese. Prefer- cave cheese. Ooh. Cave cheese is aged, a thing. Aged cheddar, cave cheddar. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I wanted to talk about art, but now we're this is called the Cape Cheese Show. <laughs> well, well, let's, and... Yeah, let's let's re let's recalibrate. So so what what is the where is this cave? What is the location of the cave? Like what is the significance of the cave? cave? I'm I'm always at odds on whether that should be um, announced because it can, it can remain secretive. This really just turned into the allegory of the cave. Yeah, yeah, straight, yeah. straight up. It, it quickly quickly goes to that, um, which is related, of course, but. Um, I, yeah, the cave is in the Midwest. It's okay. accessible. Okay. I drive there. I camp there. I... We might have to like... So we can follow you there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just, yeah. <laughs> we can have a tailgating party at the cave. Um, what I want to know is, so is this the first... So we, I, I kind of set you up to be like, Daniel G. Baird, he's a sculptor. And you're like, mm-hmm. I make models and fountains. I don't even know what a sculpture is. <laughs> Uh, is this your first fountain? Um, yeah, well, it's the first functional fountain. Um, <laughs> what other kinds I've kicked, of fountains? I've kicked around this, the idea of um, using a fountain as a sculpture uh, with this collaboration that I've done with uh, Hasib Ahmed. Um, but it's never came to a literal fruition of oh, yeah, becoming I guess. a fountain. It's kind of just alluded to that. Was that in your show at, at Roots and Culture? Yes. Your collaborative show there was kind of fountain-y yes. vibes, yeah, but that, no actual water. Yeah, the show at Roots, the the premise of that um, iteration of the project was really uh, emerged from the idea of creating a fountain, but it ultimately um, didn't turn into a fountain. Well, so that was probably a, like four years ago. So you're yeah, advancing yeah, in fountain technology. <laughs> So there's a fountain in the middle of the space. Um, I'm, we're playing well, the, the yes. radio visualization game. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so there's there's two spaces. I divided the space up into two different rooms, mm-hmm. and one room has this fountain model in the um, center. Um, there, uh, there are other pieces in this room that are made up of uh, fossilized tortoise shells. Well, I um, love tortoises. <laughs> and then also in this room are these... Uh, these wall pieces that are kind of like they're they're like reliefs of hand gestures into plaster that I then mold and cast in marble dust. Um, Mar- where does one find marble dust? That's not so hard to source. You just find it, I guess. Yeah, where a, where you have marble, they have you, marble dust. You can get a dick flick. Yeah, yeah, oh. that is true. Um, <laughs> Who is not a sponsor? No, no, no. Uh, so there's one room with those elements in it, <clears throat> and then. I divided that room and uh, made the entryway into the other room uh, correspond to the same um, proportions of the actual cave that the works are sourced from. Mm. So I wanted to have this. um, So it's like you're entering the cave. Yeah. I wanted to create this uh, bodily experience of moving into a a different space. And then there's there's a moment that is not um, very... uh, it doesn't really announce itself, but in the in the model, from a position where you're looking at the mouth of the cave model, you can see you see the contour in the wall, and it corresponds to the smaller um, object. Like they're lined up in the space. Yeah. yeah. So there's no label that says kind of like no cave labels. entrance. No yeah, labels at all. No, no, no. You just have this bodily experience, and then into the other room, there's um, it's uh, there are four new pieces that are these um. 
broken gestures. So I've been making these works where they're uh, narrow. Uh, I, I love this, that as, like, a, as a visual description. Broken gestures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, um, they're, they're just finger gestures, single, oh, continuous yes. movements. So I've seen, I've seen these pieces there, and they're in plaster. They're, they're made in plaster, and then the same process of molding and casting marble dust happens. Man, that marble dust. Yeah. It's a, but they look almost yeah. like, uh, I think of those pieces, this is maybe a little weird, as like bobsled tracks or like luges. Yeah. Or kind of like, they seem like like landscape paths, but then they have this kind of very, I guess, yeah, like diminutive tactile relationship to reality. Yeah, and that's that's really what I'm going for is like an understanding of looking at that and having a very um, immediate understanding that that gesture is familiar. That most a people finger have, move. Yeah, have again, we're that. we're here on the radio doing things you can't see. <laughs> yeah, um, Dan is waving his finger in the air and then lightly <laughs> dragging it down. It's yeah. kind of sensual. I was just gonna say very <laughs> very sensuous, especially when <laughs> I do it. <clears throat> Yeah, well, it's it's very it's just common, you know, like in sand or dirt or I Cape feel like paintings. most people have experienced what the um what happens when you move your hand through a material and leave the trace of um you know the absence of what was once there. I've heard that children are very into gack. Oh my god, are gack you is into awesome. gack? I feel like you would be very into gack. I'm into gack. Yeah. You're, like, you're not like a GAC guy, but you're into it. You follow him. I can get down with GAC. Yeah. <laughs> Define yeah. for our audience GAC. Don't you, you – I mean, how old are you, Ryan? I'm old enough <laughs> to, to not play with GAC. I think that you I think like, it was just. I think it was just outside of my timeline. It's like you mix borax glue and food coloring, right? Is that yeah. kind of the idea? Yeah. But there's a lot of varieties now too, right? The, well, the, yeah, the kids have really taken off with it. But it has this – I mean, really the – I think the draw for it is like visual experience. It's pretty much Dan Beard sculpture. <laughs> visual experience and tactile experience. Uh-huh. Like yeah. they they just squish it and they're like, oh, that looks cool. But it's, I mean, your work is a lot has a lot more kind of level. That, is that your exact process? Oh, this looks like squish it in your hands. Oh, this looks cool. Here you yeah. go. Ready for the show. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's all about the squishing. Sometimes if I'm you know, have I'm not sure what to do. I just squeeze some gack in my hand. And sure, but I will say I don't know of any artist who, at once, kind of so foregrounds tactility and like the touch and the physical reality of hands, and then also mediates it so deeply. Like I feel like when you look at a sculpture by Dan, it's like you're simultaneously in the prehistoric past and then like you know, in the golden record hmm. technological future. It does, it brings, yeah. it bridges the the ancient with the contemporary, with the digital. Yeah. The, I mean, he's I'm, in a cave 3D scanning. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. There's, there's, <laughs> yeah. the, there's the direct line right there. Yeah. I'm really, I, I am really interested in that contrast, like these very deep histories. I think that also happens in material. So the use of aluminum is kind of a futuristic material, but then that paired with a simple gesture.
On this month's episode of Divisive, Leah Gibson and Craig Harshaw talk about the lesser-known film Anna Lucasta, as well as other films in the quote-unquote exploitation genre. Divisive, Lumpin' Radio's arts and social practice review, airs the third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m. Well, I wonder if we might time travel back a little bit um, to talk about a very kind of unique film, um, Anna Lucasta. Yes. from 1958, in light of what you just said. Because I feel like going all the way back to that film, which um, Anna Lucasta was based on a play by Philip Jordan. Um, he originally wrote the play about a sex worker um, who's been disowned by her family and becomes a sex worker, somebody who's been kicked out of her house and has become um, a sex worker. Um, and then the family um, invites her back home because they're trying to marry her off to a rich man because they think they can make some money off of that. That's basically the story of the play. It was originally about Polish-Americans, but no white theater would produce the play. So it was sold to the American Negro Theater, and the American Negro Theater's artistic team worked with Philip Jordan to adapt it into an all-African-American cast. And then they presented the same story, basically, and they didn't change it very much, um, presented the same story, and now it's about a middle-class black family who has done this, who has outcast one daughter, who then became a prostitute, um, and who is returned to the family for that reason. And I just put that out because when I watched this film, and this was my first time watching it in preparation for the show, I was blown away by Anna herself, the protagonist of the film, as embodied <laughs> by Eartha Kitt. And this film was dumped by the studio back during the studio system. They just didn't really promote it. Um, and that's one of the reasons that everybody doesn't know about it. But I thought this film was so modern that I said to you, this is sort of like Foxy Brown or, <laughs> or Coffee or Cleopatra Jones or something like this back in the 1950s in this domestic drama. I couldn't believe the way Anna Lucasta talked to police officers, yes. the way she talked to men, um, and the way she carried herself with such a level of strength and... Um, Resiliency. I was utterly, utterly confused when I started watching this film from 1958, where in the first scenes you see Eartha Kitt in a bar <laughs> in a tight dress, um, <laughs> and there's a police officer who approaches her and she says, you know, She's very dismissive of this police officer and says, you know, police aren't my favorite people. Besides, police aren't my favorite people. And I'm going, wait, what? This is 1958. What is going on right now? Like, where is she? Where is this movie supposed to be taking place? Um, is is this a white man? Is this a black man? Because I can't quite tell. It's black and white, but also, you know, like, they're very light-skinned uh, black actors in this film. Um, and then, of course, we know all the rules about, you know, who can play in what roles. Um, we've, we've spent time with uh, films about passing where you've got actors who are white playing black folk and you've got, you know, blackface. So, I mean, and, and, and some of the stuff goes on 
you know, it's into the, the, the 30s and 40s, but not quite the 50s, but we're still, we're still looking at a time period where Eartha Kitt's, Eartha Kitt's uh, character and role and just the story, I'm, I'm like, what is going, I had to call you, right, Craig? I was like, Craig, what? <laughs> or you called me because I was texting you, like, what's going on? Like, what is this? What am I looking at? Right. Well, I feel like if we then, if we take that, um, also Anna Lucosta clearly deals with all kinds of things like polyamory and and maybe it being okay to not be married and um, and probably incest. Again, it's 1958 and you literally were under the code. You couldn't have actually said that, but I think it's pretty clear <laughs> um, in the film. Um and let's go forward to 1973, if we can, because there are two movies that we wanted to look at from 1973. Um, Coffee, um, directed by Jack Hill, and Cleopatra Jones, um, directed by um, Jack Starrett. And these are two of the most iconic films of, of the, I'm just going to say iconic films of the 1970s, period. <laughs> um, Coffee is played by Pam Greer in what's really a uh, defining performance for the genre. Uh, Coffee is a woman whose sister has become uh, addicted uh, to heroin. Um, it is heroin, right? I'm sure yes. it's heroin in that film. And she goes out after um, the people who have, have been responsible for getting her addicted, um, I think, in order to try to pimp her out. Um, and then Cleopatra Jones, that comes out the same year, stars in another kind of iconic, icon-making performance, Tamara Dobson, as Cleopatra Jones, a special agent working with the U.S. government that is so powerful and strong that she comes close to having superpowers. Yes. Right? <laughs> and, and also has the ability to be able to, like, beat up nine or ten white men <laughs> and still have her fashions remain and her hair remain perfectly intact which i think is like <laughs> well wait there's a scene where she like floats in in the baggage claim yes it's so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> and she like knocks someone out with like the piece of her hat she knocks someone out with her hat and then when she's finished annihilating all of these these evil white drug people she picks up the brim of her hat and puts it back on sits on the baggage claim and as the police run in to arrest her she holds up her u.s government special agent badge and bats her eyes it's fantastic The Trump Diaries. This week, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal dish. Democrats roll Trump on the budget. Students pour into streets in protest of the National Rifle Association. Trump hires John Bolton, raising fears of war. And Trump is now down to a single lawyer as Mueller closes in. These are the Trump Diaries. 
Day 427, March 22nd. John Dowd quit as Trump's lead lawyer on the Russian probe, saying he'd concluded his client was not listening to him. Trump has taken to criticizing Mueller by name in tweets and attacking other key figures in the probe. He has also repeatedly told reporters he will sit for an interview with Mueller, believing he can talk his way out of any trouble. Dowd was strongly opposed to both tactics. And senators said Trump is not doing enough to safeguard voting from hacking and other interference. The Senate Intelligence Committee recommended that states buy voting machines that only produce paper ballots, and that Congress release funds to the states to secure balloting ahead of key midterm elections. Republicans have resisted these measures despite bipartisan approval. Briefing papers were leaked to the media that showed Trump had been warned not to congratulate Russian President Vladimir Putin on his election win. Trump did congratulate Putin and has told the incoming National Security Advisor John Bolton to crack down on leakers. The fired Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe authorized a federal criminal investigation into whether or not Jeff Sessions perjured himself before Congress about his contacts with Russians. McCabe was fired by Sessions for a, quote, lack of candor, which McCabe vociferously denies. He claims it is an attempt at witness intimidation. Sessions apparently did not know that McCabe had authorized the criminal probe. And a leftist challenge to a sitting House congressman was beaten back in Illinois. A vulnerable Dan Lipinski, described by insiders as one of the weakest candidates, beat Marie Newman, a suburban marketing consultant with no political experience, by just 2,000 votes. Newman swept the suburbs, but the Democratic machine mobilized for Lipinski and delivered the city. The result may show the limits of leftist challenges. Also, an avowed Nazi won the Republican nomination against Lipinski and will face him in the general election. Arthur Jones ran unopposed and collected some. 40,000 votes. Devin Nunes is being investigated for violations of campaign finance laws. The House member has been a reliable water carrier for Trump. And the former playmate Karen McDougal gave an in-depth and tearful interview to Anderson Cooper detailing her affair with Trump. She said she was in love with him. She also apologized to Melania Trump and said that Trump had tried to pay her after sex. Day 428, March 23rd. Congress passed a $1.3 trillion budget that was a stinging repudiation to Trump's agenda. Gleeful Democrats celebrated financing for virtually everything on their wish list. Big losers included Betsy DeVos, our entire plan for the Department of Education shot down, and Trump, who got nothing for his much-touted wall. Trump sent out angry tweets claiming he would veto the bill, then had a bizarre signing ceremony in which he ranted about the bill, saying no one had read it and that he would never sign one like this again, but that he was forced to sign it because, quote, funding our military is so important. The scene bewildered and baffled White House advisors who were reportedly left whipsawed by Trump's behavior. Trump also signed a bill to impose $60 billion in tariffs against China, saying it was the first of many. The Dow tumbled 700 points in response over fears of a global trade war. And it has been revealed that Steve Bannon oversaw Cambridge Analytica's early efforts to collect Facebook data. John Bolton was also an early customer of their data. The company has suspended its CEO, Alexander Nix, after he was caught on hidden camera in the UK, bragging about entrapping politicians with Ukrainian women. And Trump has banned transgender troops in the military, claiming they, quote, present a considerable risk to military effectiveness and lethality. The ban disqualifies U.S. troops who have had gender reassignment surgery and reverses a 2016 Obama-era rule. This reversal was opposed by the military, who see it as an unnecessary degradation of men and women in uniform. Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster have both left their post. Tillerson did not mention Trump in his farewell address, calling D.C. a very mean-spirited town. McMaster received a three-and-a-half-minute standing ovation from his staff. Many in the White House say they do not know if they can work with his replacement. 
And speaking of which, Trump has hired John Bolton to be his new national security advisor, raising alarms on Capitol Hill. Bolton is a vicious neocon war hawk. He has advocated for bombing Iran and North Korea and pursuing regime change in Cuba. Bolton, a former UN ambassador who was not improved by Congress, George W. Bush installed him in a recess appointment. He was reportedly selected by Trump due to his appearances on Fox News. Bolton had been previously turned down by Trump for a State Department job because Trump didn't like his mustache. And Trump had a bizarre exchange with former Vice President Joe Biden. Biden had said he would, quote, beat the hell out of Trump if they were in high school together. Trump tweeted, crazy Joe Biden is trying to act like a tough guy. Actually, he's weak both mentally and physically, and yet he threatens me for the second time with physical assault. He doesn't know me, but he would go down fast and hard crying all the way. Don't threaten people, Joe. Day 429, March 24th. Hundreds of thousands of high school students marched this weekend across the United States, protesting against political inaction and paralysis on gun control. Called the March for Our Lives, enormous crowds came out to speak bluntly on the NRA and the toxic culture of guns in the United States. Rallies were held in virtually every congressional district. The NRA responded by attempting to smear the students involved in the Parkland High School shooting, with one spokesman claiming, quote, no one would know their names if not for the massacre in Florida. Washington, D.C. and the state of Maryland have sued Trump for violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The suits claim Trump has used his office to personally enrich himself. The hacker who claimed responsibility for stealing the Democrat National Committee emails has been revealed as a GRU KGB officer. Gujifer 2.0 was caught after his VPN failed by investigators who were able to tie his real IP address to the Russian state military offices. New York City is investigating the Kushner's realty firm after a report that the company repeatedly lied on official paperwork about the number of people in their buildings who were eligible for rent control. Day 430, March 25th. The adult film star Stormy Daniels made a long-awaited appearance on 60 Minutes Sunday night and said she struck a deal for silence about an alleged affair with Trump because she was worried about her and her young daughter's safety. Daniels said she was threatened in a parking lot by Las Vegas by a man who told her to leave Trump alone. Daniels said she is now speaking out because while she was fine keeping silent, she is, quote, not okay being made out to be a lawyer. Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, has threatened to sue Daniels for $20 million. Intriguingly, Trump has not tweeted at all about Daniels, a surprising omission given his history. And Trump will not hire the two lawyers who were announced last week. In a statement, Trump said the president is disappointed that conflicts prevent Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tensing from joining the president's special counsel legal team. The reversal combined with the departure of John Dowd last week leaves Trump with a shrinking stable of lawyers, essentially just one, as the Mueller inquiry gathers speed. Trump tweeted earlier this week that many lawyers were taking his case and that the fake news media was selling a false narrative. Facebook has responded to the Cambridge Analytica debacle by taking up full-page newspaper ads containing a personal apology from Mark Zuckerberg. The social media giant has been stung with a tumbling stock price and a trending hashtag, Delete Facebook, that has seen waves of user defections from the site in the United States. However, analysts say only stronger government regulation is likely to change how Facebook collects data. Day 431, March 26th. Trump expelled 60 Russians from the United States, including 12 people identified as intelligence officers who had been stationed at the UN in New York. The expulsions part of a coordinated response to Russia's alleged poisoning of a former Russian spy in Britain are the toughest actions taken yet against the nation state. The order also closes a consulate in Seattle due to its proximity to a naval base. 
and common causes asked the Justice Department and the Federal Election Commission to investigate if Cambridge Analytica and its affiliate, SCL Group Limited, violated a ban on foreign nationals participating in the, quote, decision-making process of campaigns or political committees. That is illegal. Analytica has been under fire for stealing the user data of 50 million Facebook users and reportedly had several foreign nationals working on the Trump campaign. And political reports that obvious conflicts of interest torpedoed the hiring of lawyers Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tensing to Trump's legal team. In addition, other key lawyers reportedly refused to take the case due to Trump's erratic behavior and the presence of lawyer Mark Kaskowitz, who is widely disrespected in the legal community. Day 432, March 27th. CNN is reporting that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke is being investigated for telling employees that, quote, diversity isn't important or something I care about. Zinke reassigned 33 senior employees suddenly, 15 of which are minorities. Some have now filed complaints with the U.S. Merit Board. Zinke is being investigated by multiple agencies for those reassignments, as well as seen as politically motivated travel expenses, which are impermissible. Chinese state media is reporting that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is committed to denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. The secretive leader of the Hermit Kingdom made a sudden state visit to Beijing ahead of meetings with the United States. Satellite images, however, tell a different tale as North Korea is apparently ramping up nuclear production. And Trump is now seeking to have the U.S. military pay for the construction of his border wall. Trump told his advisors that the Pentagon should fund his wall by setting a, quote, national security risk. Trump has tweeted, build a wall through M. Trump apparently hopes aide Rob Porter will return to the West Wing. Porter was forced out after it was revealed he had abused both of his ex-wives. Trump has remained in steady contact with Porter. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting the White House is conducting an internal investigation into two loans made to Jared Kushner's family businesses. The loans, a $184 million loan from Apollo Global and a $325 million loan from Citigroup, may have violated the law. Day 433, March 28th. 12 states have sued to stop Trump from adding a question about citizenship to the 2020 census, saying the change violates the Constitution and would cause fewer Americans to be counted. Citizenship questions have been struck from the census since 1960. Such a question is seen as a tool to depress the count, which hurts big cities, urban areas, and the Democratic Party. And two leading Chicago attorneys said thanks, but no thanks to Trump. Tom Buchanan and Dan Webb were both asked to represent Trump against Robert Mueller in the Russia probe. Both refused. Trump will let the deferred enforced departure status for Liberian nationals expire on March 31st. He also will not extend legal protection for them to remain in the USA. No reasons were given for this decision. And Trump's approval rating is now 42%, the highest of his tenure. He still remains far below most other presidents. These are the Trump Diaries. spoke with Michael Daly, the author of Bobby Blue Jacket, a tale of crime and redemption set among the Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma. Daly discussed the case, the mid-view of the 1950s, and what attracted him to the true crime genre. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature Show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Bobby Blue Jacket, and this is a, this is a very long, uh, well-researched book. It's over, what, almost 700 pages. Well, the last hundred are footnotes, but... You're yeah. still supposed to read those, right? I mean, you're supposed to read the footnotes, right? That's, that's correct. That's what yeah. I learned in college. 43. Bobby Blue Jacket is uh, a person who spent a lot of time in jail, uh, multiple times for various felonies and misdemeanors. An obvious question is, why was this guy uh, 
so attractive to you as a subject? Because, you know, some people would look at this and say, well, you know, he's a 15-time loser who spent a great deal of time in the penitentiary in the state of Oklahoma. Obviously, that's not the story. So what is it about him that made him such a magnetic figure, Michael? Yeah, it's a good question and one that I kind of answer differently each time uh, <clears throat> someone asks me it. But uh, I guess I was attracted to him one off a of gut instinct the first time I talked to him because he's a uh, kind of magnanimous figure. Despite all of his wild stories, the most interesting thing is kind of uh, the way he tells them where he's uh, extremely evocative, emotionally in touch with himself, but also is uh, kind of has like a very deep uh, gallows humor to the whole thing. And uh, when you say he's kind of a 15-time loser, uh, I don't know if I think about it exactly those terms, but I do think history is often more interesting uh, when it's told from a perspective other than uh, those in power, because I think it gives a different, uh, illuminates a different side of society uh, of a time and place. Jamie, I was going to ask, um, how did you end up talking to him, getting in touch with him in contact? Was, uh, was it through... The, the Larry Clark photographs, was that when you were first introduced, or was it some other, uh, were you doing research for another article? Yeah, so I met Blue Jacket uh, actually working on a different book. At the time, this would be 2012, I think. I was working on a history of Larry Clark's photo book, Tulsa, uh, which for those that don't know, is a 1971 documentary photography book that... Uh, uh, shows the lives of various kind of petty criminals and uh, amphetamine addicts in Tulsa. And so as part of that process, uh, I had been listening to and reading the transcript of this audio recording made by Larry in 1968. <clears throat> On the recording are three petty thieves uh, all ranting about how one of them couldn't get bonded out of jail. One of the guys says, well, you should have just talked to Blue Jacket. And so that was a pretty interesting name to me at the time. Uh, and I made note of that. And then I talked to Larry. And Larry was like, oh, man, he was this uh, uh, legendary outlaw, blew a guy's head off with a shotgun at a teen rumble in a hamburger stand. And I was like, okay, that's pretty interesting. Um, and so I put him down as a source to look into on this book. Uh, nothing happened. Then I came across him in a memoir by Ron Paget, who's a great poet, also born in Tulsa. Reached out to Ron. He put me in touch with Blue Jacket. I interviewed Blue Jacket, talking about the Larry Clark deal. Uh, and then at the end of the interview, I started asking about his life. And he's telling me all these stories about how he grew up in alleyways, hustling newspapers, how he's a safe burglar, uh, how the whole deal on this killing at the hamburger stand was told completely wrong. And, uh, you know, I got hooked from there. And uh, we started talking about once a week after that. You know, when I, when I first saw the title of the book, I thought Blue Jacket was a, was a nickname. It's not. I know that because I read the book, but can you tell listeners the history of the name? Yeah, a lot of people think that, but it's actually a uh, Eastern Shawnee name. And uh, it's, among the Eastern Shawnee, one of the most kind of prestigious names you can have. It goes all the way back to a uh, uh, war chief in the late 18th century named Blue Jacket. At that time, two words. Um, and he's famous, actually, because he inflicted uh, the greatest defeat upon white American forces uh, ever, and that was against a general named Arthur St. Clair. Uh, and it's often uh, said in the history books that Custer's defeat of Little Bighorn was uh, a mere skirmish compared to the uh, punishment the Blue Jacket had inflicted. I kind of want to go back to something you said about telling a history from a very different point of view. Blue Jacket, as this book makes very clear, grew up, um, it was a hard life. 
I don't think there's any question about it. Opportunity was limited for him. He's not uh, somebody that comes off as unintelligent, but he does come off as somebody that uh, did not necessarily get the best education in the education system that was available to him. And in fact, many times uh, he goes places to reform schools and that, and his education is positively awful, which also further seems to isolate him. And you talk a little bit in the book about how this was fairly common for people on Indian communities. Can you delve into a little bit of this? Because I think that's a really interesting thread that came into this book very early. And could I add a, just a little ending <clears throat> to that, too, maybe talk about what the Indian schools were as well? Um, I wasn't entirely up to date on all that history. I, you know, we talk about race and, and discrimination and, and uh, institutionalized racism so much in this country. But often the Native Americans are left out of the conversation. And um, I was really, I mean, some of the things that you talk about, especially in the book, um, Oklahoma having more languages than Europe at the time. And, you know, just the constant, you know, we all know about the Trail of Tears, but the constant, um, you know, dispersal yeah. and, and reassimilation and then dispersal. And I just asked like 50 questions. But if you want to <laughs> start with Jamie's and <laughs> roll downhill. No, well, I mean, you know, I that is I kind of had the same experience as you where I don't know if schools are different now. I doubt they are. But uh, a lot of this was new to me when I first started researching, because I feel like the the education you get as, as it regards Native American history um, in grade school and high school, at least, is uh, incredibly cursory, you know, always written as a kind of prehistory to U.S. history, even though it's the at the core of U.S. history. And if the, if the Native Americans wins, it's a massacre, and if the white man wins, it's a great battle. I always, I always remember that from Yes, uh, Manifest Destiny. <laughs> um, but, yeah, to the schooling point, so Blue Jacket went through a series of kind of horrific educational... Um, experiences. The first being, as you said, the Indian boarding schools. And those were part of uh, a larger U.S. campaign of assimilation, of which the goal was that uh, most of the military conflicts against Native Americans had ended uh, by the mid-19th century. And so now uh, the United States had a cultural push to basically turn Native Americans into white Americans. And this was largely achieved through uh, boarding schools. There are some day schools and other versions. But these boarding schools, would you take tribal members board them at the schools, and then attempt to erase uh, their languages, their culture, uh, their religions, so that at the end of your schooling, you would come up as basically a lower-class white American laborer. And, um, you know, there people have many different opinions on them. Uh, Blue Jacket thought they were a disgrace and um, were incredibly traumatic, and worst of all, didn't actually produce any education for him. Also, a lot of them were founded by Christian missionaries, correct? Yeah, so early on from kind of like a financing history uh, angle, uh, these were largely launched by missionaries and then were uh, partially funded by the government to kind of keep the government's hands in the, in the mix. And then over time, they kind of became fully uh, government institutions. But was, the point wasn't to educate the Indian population, <clears throat> though. That, that didn't seem to, from the telling I, I got in your book, it was to keep them exactly where they were, marginalized citizens. Yeah, and I, well, I think, you know, like any part of history, it's made up of all these different individuals with their own goals, but I think even those that sought out, who thought they were positively educating um, people like Bobby Blue Jacket, they were educating them from this kind of, uh, I know better than you, patriarchal type standpoint, where their point of view 
was the right point of view, and it kind of then led to this attempted cultural, what's called a cultural genocide. That, that, that actually brings up a, a good point. There, there's a part of that section of the book where you're talking about some of the staff members at one of the schools he went to, and I think their ambivalence about orders from above and um, them knowing that it wasn't exactly right that what they were doing, but they were powerless to change anything. So they tried to help the kids, the boys, as much as they could. And it it made me think how you really, really drilled down for your research. And there, there are probably over 100 books that you read just yes, for this one book alone? something like that, yeah. Yeah. Did, <coughs> did you have a problem, like, did it just keep growing and growing and growing? And, did, and how did you know when to cut it off or cut back? Uh, yeah, well, I have, like, a book-buying compulsion, so uh, <laughs> yeah, it was right. both we all do. psychologically and financially uh, uh, took its toll. Uh, <laughs> but now, I don't know, I kind of just, you know, you know in your gut when to stop, which, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was, like, a, a certain kind of criteria but I just worked, I kind of laid Blue Jacket's story and my interviews with him, which went over kind of five plus years of talking, formed the backbone of the story. And then I would go back and kind of, because he's lived in all these marginal points in US history, um, assuming that most people were like myself that didn't know that much about him. So then I would go back and try and paint in the context of like, why is he at the Seneca Indian School? And what was that about? <clears throat> and kind of go, go from there. <laughs> Radio Free also presented a new John Daly session. Color Card rolled into Studio C to play a woozy set of Vaporwave and Shoegaze. The song is Ego Shower. The John Daly sessions air every Tuesday, drive time at 5 p.m.
Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Mm-hmm.